Now then, 8.07, the gun control debate back on the agenda. 26 innocent people, including an 18-month-old baby, were killed. 20 more wounded in a mass shooting during last Sunday morning service at the First Baptist Church in the small Texas town of Sutherland Springs. No apparent racial or religious motivation. It seems the shooter who died after the attack was caught up in a family problem. Well, we should also point out that there are reports emerging that he was able to escape from a mental health clinic in 2012 and that uh, the assault charge he'd faced against his ex-wife should have legally barred him from owning guns in the first place. So just bear that in mind as we discuss how to control lethal weapons in the US. Professor Robert Spitzer from the Political Science Department uh, at State University of New York, Cortland, joins us on the line. First of all, uh, we'll have another guest in a moment. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Yes, indeed. Happy to speak with you. Um, so, so we know that the shooter has got a, a troubled history, a violent history. Do we know how he was able to get hold of a weapon? Well, yes, we do. He purchased four weapons uh, legally from uh, from weapons dealers. The big question is how was it that he was able to make these purchases legally given the background that you just mentioned? And the answer is uh, a pretty distressing one. It is really two parts. One was that the domestic abuse that he heaped upon his then wife and her small son, who was a baby, uh, occurred while he was in the military and he was caught and punished but within the military system of justice, which is a separate and distinct system of justice from the usual civilian courts that would otherwise handle criminal matters. And then that led ultimately to his discharge from the military. However, he was able to negotiate a discharge that is called a bad conduct discharge, which is a slightly less onerous discharge than what's called a dishonorable discharge, which is the sort of lowest or least honorable way to leave military service. Had he been given a dishonorable discharge, his name would have automatically been included on the list of people uh, maintained by the federal government of those who are barred from purchasing firearms. But because he had negotiated this bad conduct discharge, which is a step above, his name did not automatically go on the list of those who are not allowed to buy firearms. And the military, he was in the Air Force at the time, and the Air Force actually was supposed to transmit information about his uh, criminal activities, as it were, when he was in the military, because he did serve a year in military prison as a result of the abuse that he was found guilty of. And that information should have made its way, it was supposed to have made its way to the civilian records relevant to gun purchases, but it did not. And this suggests that there are many such records, perhaps most even, that do not make their way to the civilian lists when they should. And that, I think, is the big takeaway so far from this terrible incident. For for many of us who have not um, spent much time in the United States uh, or certainly may not have had the experience of trying to buy a firearm, what do you have to do? You you walk into a, a store and you, you want to buy a, a weapon. How, how do you go about that? Uh, and does it vary greatly from state to state? Uh, the answer is that it does vary from state to state quite quite a bit. And there are two broad categories 
whether you want to purchase a long gun, uh, which is what this assault rifle was that he obtained that he used to kill all these people, versus a handgun. Now, in some states, it is as easy to buy a handgun as it is to buy a long gun, and it consists of nothing more than going to a licensed gun dealer, uh, expressing the desire to make the purchase, having your name run through the background check system that's maintained by the federal government, and usually you get a response back right away within a few minutes, yes, you are clear to make the purchase, or no, you are not clear, or no response comes back. Mm. Um, In some states, buying a handgun, I would say in many states, buying a handgun, handgun is more complicated and has a higher bar, so to speak, than buying a long gun. That is true in my home state, which is New York State, where if you want to buy a handgun, it actually takes uh, quite a bit of time. It can take several months because you must first obtain a permit to buy the handgun, and obtaining that permit obtain, it call, it takes several months. However, for a long gun, normally you can be in and out of the store, uh, as would be true for making almost any typical consumer purchase. What's to stop those weapons then finding their way onto the so-called black market uh, and, and where they might be sold to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to access them legally? Well, they, they certainly can make their way to the black market. However, it's important to remember that the most, uh, the most desired gun when it comes to criminality is a handgun. And there, because of the greater restrictions of obtaining handguns in most places, there is a more vigorous black market. And in the United States, it is not that difficult to travel from a state that has strict gun laws to a state that has lax gun laws, buy a bunch of handguns and bring them back Mm. uh, just driving on interstate highway across several states. In fact, the police in New York State referred to this as the Iron Pipeline, because southern states in the U.S. have quite loose gun laws, and there is indeed gun trafficking that occurs, especially of handguns, the the weapon of choice of most criminals. Um, When it comes to long guns, they are much easier to obtain, but most criminal acts, again, do not involve long guns, but an exception is mass shooters who like to use assault weapons, and indeed those are not very difficult to obtain as long as you have the money to, to pay for one. We've had this debate plenty of times, and for people in countries where guns are not commonplace, it's often difficult to understand why it seems so important to many Americans to be able to carry such deadly weapons. Um, why, even when you know we're talking about a tiny percentage of people who might pose a risk, why, why take the risk? Why is it so important to have these weapons? Well, it is mostly because of our politics. Even among gun owners, large majorities of gun owners favor stricter regulations uh, with respect to guns. But the political wing of the gun movement, you might say, what's referred to as the gun lobby, headed mostly by the National Rifle Association, uh, have kind of a, a, a monopoly on the sources, the, the centers of power in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., and they are in a political position where they essentially oppose 
any stronger gun laws, no matter how limited, no matter how modest, partly because they have argued for so many years that any uh, increase in a gun law, in gun laws, is a step towards gun confiscation. It's not a very good or sensible argument or logical argument, but they have making, been making this argument for many, many years. Mm. And, of course, they talk about Americans' freedom. We should have the freedom to buy whatever gun or guns we want. It's the American tradition. And they also talk about the Second Amendment, which is in our Bill of Rights, which makes reference to a right to bear arms. But that amendment itself is normally exaggerated in terms of what it actually protects. Right. Because even when our U.S. Supreme Court said that there was, for the first time in American history in 2008, a constitutional right of civilian Americans to own a gun for personal self-protection in the home, the court also said essentially that most existing gun laws would be fine, would not be considered unconstitutional. So it's really the political drive of the uh, National Rifle Association, which is very, very tight with the Republican Party, which controls Congress and the presidency right now. Professor Spitzer, thank you for the explanation. Sure. Professor, Good to talk to you. Likewise. Uh, Professor Robert Spitzer from the Political Science Department at State University, New York. Uh, let's turn our attention to Dr. Gary Slutkin, Professor of Epidemiology and International Health at University of Illinois, Chicago, who um, gained prominence with the TED lecture, Let's Treat Violence Like a Contagious Disease. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. And perhaps we can start with the Chicago Project for Violence Prevention, known as Cure Violence. Yes, you'd like me to talk about Cure Violence. So, sorry, Dr. Slutkin, yes. Could you just start by just telling us a little bit more about that project? Okay, so Cure Violence is a non-governmental organization that is working in about 70 communities on uh, five continents. Um, We're working in 25 cities in the U.S., in Latin America, in South Africa, and also in the Middle East. And we've also done some work in Europe. As you mentioned, it uses the approach to reducing violence which is very similar to the way that we manage any epidemic, a cholera epidemic, an Ebola epidemic. We look at violence also as being an epidemic. I, I myself used to work for World Health Organization, and so um, I was able to see how violence was behaving in the same epidemic way, one event leading to another, growing on itself, spreading, having all of these characteristics of spread. So we decided to um, use indigenous health workers in cities, communities, and countries, train them to cool down their own people. And this now has uh, a tremendous amount of evidence that we can drop um, shootings and killings in neighborhoods um, by between 40 and 70%. And there's even some communities that have gone down to zero that used to be very seriously violent. What would be some of the primary methods that you would implement then? So um, Cure Violence hires what works with a city or a community to, uh, for them to hire people from the same population who are doing shootings, who know them, and who are trusted by them. And then they're um, 
hired, trained, supported, and um, the methods, the techniques of finding out what's going on in the neighborhood, who is mad at who, who is upset, what happened at the party last night. And then if someone is considering doing a shooting, to be able to um, cool that person down. Their training includes being able to have that person cool them down, buy some time, buy some more time, keep him and his friends cool, and then um, to reframe it so they can feel still good about themselves to not do the, the shooting. Yes. In the case of a mass shooting, sometimes, though, the shooter, while they might be known to have a violent history, not always the case, uh, they might have the characteristics of a loner and and not be seen coming, as it were. Uh, how How can we treat those kinds of cases as a contagious disease? Well, you can see the contagion um, in because um, when there are um, mass shootings, that leads to more mass shootings, which leads to more. Just like um, suicides, you lead to more suicides. Right. More. Yes. I mean, but instead of as you're, I think, alluding, instead of it occurring in one neighborhood, after you know the same neighborhood, the same neighborhood, it's occurring here and then all the way over there and then all the way over there. So what? Um, we need to depend on is um, being able to get advanced warnings, which do exist. <laughs> They've been present as possibly um, warnings in almost every single case. In fact, the only one that I think didn't probably did, but we just don't know about it. So these, the situation here is that there are friends who are suspicious of things, and there are family members who are suspicious of things, and teachers or workplace, and so on. But their only options are either to do nothing or to call law enforcement. And people don't want to call law enforcement on friends who are just looking funny or, you know, someone who hasn't come out of the room for a while or on their son. They don't want to get them in that kind of trouble, so they frequently do nothing. Whereas if you're calling a health worker, and we get these calls all the time, you know, my son is loading up weapons downstairs. Yes. Or... You know, my friend is about to do it. So we're able to, because we're kind of from the health sector, able to get in there and prevent the events. Well, thank you so much. I mean, in a situation where guns are prevalent and we can debate the rights and wrongs of it, the reality is uh, guns are in the U.S. and they appear to be there to stay, at least in, in some form. Um approaching it in your way seems to be uh, something that we should be taking more seriously. Dr. Slutkin, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate your hearing about pure violence. Thank you very much for the time. Dr. Gary Slutkin, you can check out his TED Talk, Let's Treat Violence Like a Contagious Disease. He comes out of the University of Illinois, Chicago, the uh, uh, professor of epidemiology and international health there. Uh, but interesting and, and an obvious point to make as well, the, the, the copycat nature of this. And, and we can see, just like suicides, violence almost being contagious. Wouldn't it be wonderful to take the primary weapon out of violence's hands, though? You can text us right now your thoughts. Powder Sharp 1013 for 51 per message.